Welcome to Him We Proclaim, a podcast devoted to the preaching ministry of the Mount Church. Know that the following sermon is specifically intended to build up our local church in Clemson, South Carolina. Feel free to listen along and distribute what you hear, while prioritizing what we pray is the faithful preaching ministry of the healthy local church to which you meaningfully belong. With that, all grace to you as you listen to this episode of Him We Proclaim. Let me invite you to turn your Bibles to the book of Esther. This morning we're going to be studying the majority part of chapter 9, Esther chapter 9. So the author of this book begins there, verse 1, chapter 9, under the inspiration of the Holy Spirit. But now in the twelfth month, which is the month of Adar, on the thirteenth day of the same, when the king's command and edict were about to be carried out, on the very day when the enemies of the Jews hoped to gain the mastery over them, the reverse occurred. The Jews gained mastery over those who hated them. The Jews gathered in their cities throughout all the provinces of King Ahasuerus to lay hands on those who sought their harm. And no one could stand against them, for the fear of them had fallen on all peoples. All the officials of the provinces and the satraps and the governors and the royal agents also helped the Jews for the fear of Mordecai had fallen on them. For Mordecai was great in the king's house, and his fame spread throughout all the provinces, for the man Mordecai grew more and more powerful. The Jews struck all their enemies with the sword, killing and destroying them, and did as they pleased to those who hated them. In Susa, the citadel itself, the Jews killed and destroyed 500 men and also killed Parshandatha and Dalphon and Aspatha and Poratha and Adalia and Eridatha and Parmashta and Erisai and Eridai and Vezatha, the ten sons of Haman, the son of Hamadatha, the enemy of the Jews, but they laid no hand on the plunder. That very day, the number of those killed in Susa, the citadel, was reported to the king. And the king said to Queen Esther, In Susa, the citadel, the Jews have killed and destroyed 500 men and also the ten sons of Haman. What then have they done in the rest of the king's provinces? Now what is your wish? It shall be granted you. And what further is your request? It shall be fulfilled. And Esther said, If it please the king, let the Jews who are in Susa be allowed tomorrow also to do according to this day's edict, and let the ten sons of Haman be hanged on the gallows. And so the king commanded this to be done. A decree was issued in Susa, and the ten sons of Haman were hanged. The Jews who were in Susa gathered also on the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and they killed three hundred men in Susa, but they laid no hands on the plunder. Now, The rest of the Jews who were in the king's provinces also gathered to defend their lives and got relief from their enemies and killed 75,000 of those who hated them, but they laid no hands on the plunder. This was on the 13th day of the month of Adar, and on the 14th day they rested and made that a day of feasting and gladness. But the Jews who were in Susa gathered on the 13th day 
and on the fourteenth, and rested on the fifteenth day, making that a day of feasting and gladness. Therefore the Jews of the villages who live in the rural towns hold the fourteenth day of the month of Adar as a day for gladness and feasting, as a holiday, and as a day on which they send gifts of food to one another. And Mordecai recorded these things, and sent letters to all the Jews who were in all the provinces of King Ahasuerus, both near and far, obliging them to keep the fourteenth day of the month of Adar, and also the fifteenth day of the same, year by year, as the days on which the Jews got relief from their enemies, and as the month that had been turned for them from sorrow into gladness, and from mourning into a holiday, that they should make them days of feasting and gladness, days for sending gifts of food to one another, and gifts to the poor. Let me invite you to pray with me. Lord, we do thank you so much for your word as always. It is living and active. We ask that it would, by your mercy towards us, live and act even in these moments and come to live and act upon our hearts and within our lives that we would take courage and hope in our God. We ask it in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, no news flash here, but there are hard things in this life. Uh, we live in a fallen world, and we add our own sin to it, so there's a lot of pain. There's a lot of pain, a lot of personal injury, and a lot of perplexity as to God's involvement in all of that. How does a good and just God relate to an existence that's sin-derived futility is intensifying by the day? What does he have to do with global viruses and Haitian earthquakes and large storms that are about to crash into Louisiana and condos that in the middle of the night collapse in Miami? How are we to understand the continued tragedies, many of which we've seen in Esther, like functional sex trafficking, the objectification of women and children, uh, the destruction of family, the abuse of power for personal gain and horrors such as racism and genocide and infanticide and the seeming certainty of civil and world wars. As Christians, how can we respond to all these griefs which are but additional to the many griefs that we have witnessed in the church and the many griefs we witness happening to the church as in Afghanistan right now, to say nothing of our own personal agonies as we seem to do the evil that lies close beside, or instead we do righteousness, but when we do righteousness, we are then persecuted for it. Anyone here this morning feeling crushed this hour? Anyone confused as to the power and presence of God in all of that. Anyone trending towards the hopelessness due to not seeing Him as we want to see Him and then believing still less. Anyone hearing Romans 8.35 on tribulation and distress and persecution and famine and nakedness and danger and sword, but gone deaf to its brackets. In Romans 8.28, in Romans 
how all that somehow, by God's wisdom, will come to our final good. And none of it will ever separate us from his love towards us in Christ Jesus. Anyone forgotten that our God, who is ever-present in seeming absence, is the God of great reversals. The God of the cross, the God of the resurrection, the God of all things new. The God who, as one put it, is active in all the world, spanning the length of it and the breadth of it, who in no phase of the world's history has had his rule in danger. Anyone forgotten the unseen God that we've been seeing in the book of Esther? Well, let's be reminded of him this morning as we come to chapter 9 and see first the great reversal completed here that God's people win. And as we look there in verse 1, we see that the victory is totally anticlimactic. It's not 2016 Clemson versus Alabama, Watson to Renfro. Okay? There's no buildup throughout the chapter. There is absolutely no suspense whatsoever. On the day Haman and his compatriots intended to destroy God's people, God's people in God's all-knowing providence triumph over them Instead, we're told the end at the very beginning of the chapter. Why? Because the end was never really in doubt. Above wicked kings and above wicked fiends and above all their wicked plans over compromising believers and our troubling worldliness from time to time over all the world of his enemies who would seek to do us harm, there is the Alpha and the Omega who loves us and fights for us. There is God who in Christ is always faithful to his people. No purpose of his can be thwarted. Our victory is certain. Now, it doesn't always feel like that which is why it's so important that we see this. Uh, our circumstances are not God. Our circumstances bow to God. And more, in Jesus, our circumstances bow to our good at the end of the day. Now listen, if we, if we lose sight of that, that Christ has the victory in hand, and that God will turn all our hurt on earth to heaven in the end, that's when we begin to judge God and we begin to judge our relationship to God by the circumstances in which we find ourselves. Where faith is weak. And so we want to strengthen faith here by an historical example that one way or another, again, our God always wins. That while we can't see Him, we can know on the basis both of Scripture and of providence what our God is doing. We can say as uh, we, we love to say here that we can trust his heart even where we can't see his hand. When it comes to our end, there's no suspense. There may be lots of drama in our lives to the end, but there's no suspense on the end. We win. And so this morning, please take heart in the certainty of your salvation. Esther is meant to be used this way, and to be more pointed about it, see that we will have enemies that get in the way. God has enemies. 
Christ was crucified. We will be hated, Jesus said, for His sake. That's the the pattern that we see in Scripture. We've seen it again here in Esther. A week ago, we landed on the high ground, this exalted ground of this counter-edict that's going out to all the world, and, and many who are among the nations are beginning to identify themselves as one of God's people. That was last week, okay? Today. Today, we see that while many found reason to align themselves with Israel, with God's people then, many is not the same as all. Some, at least 75,811 to be exact, found reason to continue against all reason as the enemies of God. They refused to bow. They refused to admit the new situation, to take Haman's hanging to heart, or seek the mercy of God. Instead, they ignored all of that. They acted a fool. They took up Haman's banner. He's hanging on the gallows. They took up his banner, and they made their stand. Except that it says, if you look at verse 2, no one could stand against them. So all who attacked also fell. We're not told of a single Jewish person losing their life in the story, but every one of their enemies died. Every one of them perished. So friend, listen, I just want you to see the line that's being drawn in the sand here in chapter 9. See the side of life, and then see the other side. Whether you take up arms against God's people or not, if you're not for Christ this hour, Jesus says you are against Him this hour, and there's nothing on that side of things but death and condemnation. And so why then, why then, seeing that, why then, as the prophets are fond of saying, will you die? Why will you perish? That is, why would you persist a moment longer in your rebellion against God when God has done all in Jesus that needed to be done to renew you and pardon you and save you from your sins? Why won't you rebel against sin? Why won't you transgress Satan and run to Jesus right now? for saving grace. Be assured by what you see here that fighting against God is fighting a losing battle. You cannot win. Even if you think you've won, as perhaps the Taliban thinks in Afghanistan, or as the devil thought at the cross. Even then and there, you've only done what God has purposed and overruled to promote His victory in the world, which He kindly extends right now, yes, even to you. And again, I just invite you to lay hold of it this hour. Again, the fate of all who don't, who persist in their sinful schemes, will be undone. Listen by the Jewish man who's risen to the place of all authority. And no, I don't mean Jesus yet. You see verses 3 and 4? I mean Mordecai. What a great reversal. We're told no one could stand against God's people because, why? Fear 
had fallen on all the world, and that that fear was due to the rise of Mordecai. Mordecai had rank now. Mordecai had fame now. Mordecai had power now. He who had lived far from God, you may remember, he who had covered up his faith and discipled Esther to do this very same thing, compromising her faith, was now revered in all the world as mightier than all the great men of the Persian kingdom. And that worked for God's people two ways. It put fear in the heart of those who intended to harm them. Right? It's hard to mount a fight when you're already defeated. And it doesn't help when all the great men of the world have gone over to Mordecai's side. You have no more allies. What can you do but lose? It does not matter how long, at my age, that I practice shooting a basketball. It doesn't matter. If I go one-on-one with Giannis Antetokounmpo, I'm not going to win. I won't even score. I'm pretty sure I won't even get a shot off. He has more resources than me, as well as an insurmountable intimidation factor. And that's like what God's enemies are now facing in Mordecai. And in this, he's still only a type of the Messiah. Though what the Jews largely expected in Jesus' day? You see this? You read the Gospels and you find out that they expected a political Christ with military might, strong enough to deliver the nation from her troubles and establish her atop the world. He'd usher in God's kingdom by strategy and sword and all would be well. But Jesus was not the Christ of men. Jesus is the Christ of God. He came not to take life, but to give life by saving it from sin. He did not brandish a sword. He bore a cross. You see? He died so that His enemies might be converted and live to God. And to assure all the world of his victory, God raised him from the dead. And so, similar but greater than the effects of Mordecai's rise, the rise of Jesus locks in, one, his people win, and two, all who despise us and him to death lose. He died, but he was not defeated. He won. He's alive. He's going to return, and He's going to judge the world in righteousness. And so, friend, listen. The only way for you to win is to wave the white flag. It's to lay down your arms. It's to believe against every Adamic fiber in you that Christ will receive the repenting soul. Every person here this morning, if they are now a Christian, are so because while we were yet enemies, God effectually loved us and reconciled us to Himself by and through the death of His Son. By grace, we've been raised spiritually from the dead. So, to persist, to to come and go this morning, dead in your sins, is the farthest thing from the wisdom of God. Okay? There may be a way that seems right to a person, as the proverb says, but its end is the way of death. 
And to warn us of it, we see a type of it here. Again, not one of those who hated and fought against God's people survived that onslaught. In Susa, 500 men attack, 500 are killed. Including, by the way, those 10 sons of Haman. Apparently, the apple, or 10 apples in this case, do not fall far from the apple tree. A quick word then, if I might, to have us see this and ask ourselves, what legacy are we leaving for our children? Are we leaving them a legacy of folly or of wisdom? Are we leaving them a legacy of pride or humility, of sin or of righteousness, of hatred or love for God and for God's people? Their dad is impaled on the gallows, and where in the world is their mom? Young people, if you have parents or others in your life who care deeply to lead you to love God, to love God's people, and to love godliness, bless your lucky stars. No, we're in Esther. Don't bless your lucky stars. That's not a thing. Bless God. Bless God. Well, the day's tally, you see there, in the passage is brought to Ahasuerus, and he reports it to Esther, and I suppose to discover if it was to her satisfaction, he asks, is there anything else I can do for you, my dear? And well, verse 13, she says, essentially, yes, in fact, there is. If you don't mind, might we be allowed to act according to today's counter-edict tomorrow also? Now, some have seen sin in this on Esther's part. It's debatable. I want to argue at least that she's not suddenly turned into a kind of Bloody Mary. First, her request is confined to Susa. It's not global. It's the capital city here. Second, it's according to the counter-edict from the previous day, meaning it's only just to go on self-defense as necessary if they were attacked. And third, she gives, to her credit, she gives any potential enemy what should be a deterring warning sign. She has the ten bodies of Haman's sons hung on the gallows for all to see. And while that does sound gruesome to us, it was actually customary back then. Maybe remember Saul. And I'd say this was actually quite gracious to anyone so foolish as to attempt another assault on them. It's not quite, you remember the old song, don't be stupid, you know I love you. Anybody? No? Man, I'm getting old. Gracious. Okay. It's not exactly that, but it is definitely something like, don't be stupid. Unfortunately, it appears this kind of stupidity, this kind of spiritual stupidity of unredeemed sinners knows no bounds. If I might add a fourth thing, I would say she might have just had a sense that the danger wasn't over. And lo and behold, She's proven right, as despite every single rational deterrent, Haman's end, his son's ends, the ends of all God's enemies, the failure of 500 fools the day before, 300 more foolish attacked the next day, and so 300 more were destroyed. 
And so all their enemies were subdued. By His people, God made a complete end of them. Again, if you're not in Christ and you're thinking this morning, I'll be okay. I'll be okay. I'll escape at last. Please don't dismiss the Holy Spirit's intended pattern in this text. From 1 to 500 to 10 to 300 to 75,000 others, we see in verse 16, all the enemies of God's people fell. The same number that sought victory found defeat. If one did not bow, they absolutely did fall. You needn't fall then if you would only bow. If you would only take God at His word that Christ has the victory and that you may have it too by trusting in Him. What a burden we believers should have for those situated right now under the just wrath of God. Those who continue to refuse the love of God manifest in Christ that is designed to save them from it. Even as it's most beneficial for us and them to make the line clear as day, which I trust we are, it's equally incumbent upon us, no matter the outcome, to try and persuade them to cross that line because ours is not as Israel's. Our commission is different. It's not to destroy our enemies. It's to seek their salvation through the one that Israel was called to protect and incubate, namely, Jesus. So are we seeking redemptive reversal for lost souls all around us? Are we going to them with the good news of of pardon and peace from a king they cannot defeat? The great reversal of Esther is completed. In the providence of God, God's people have won. On the day chosen for their destruction, they were saved from all their destroyers. And that, as we see, is cause for great celebration. And so we come next, second, to their great rest and rejoicing. In verses 17 to 22. If you look there, Mordecai institutes a feast. This feast is called Purim. I just want to pile up its significance for a moment. This is what the author of Esther has been after the entire time. The story that grounds a community celebration. A feast. One they still celebrate today, by the way. Kind of like Hanukkah. In fact, Purim bookends Passover in the Jewish calendar year. And that's significant. Their days are literally framed by God's grace. They're framed by He has redeemed us. He has redeemed us. The Alpha and Omega of their year is celebrating redemptive reversal. Is that what defines our days? Are we bracketed on either side and filled with peace and joy in the grace of redemption? To that end, a few more specifics about Purim on our way to Jesus. Okay? Pur, im, is a word that translates as lots. Plural there, lot, lots. It's like casting lots or rolling the dice. You think back to chapter 3, verse 7 here. 
Mordecai's newfound faithfulness has offended Haman's prideful sensibilities, and instead of overlooking that offense, which is our glory, he saw to it that it would never happen again. He lost his sanity, he lost all humanity, and he sought that Jewish extinction. But as to the day of his vengeance, he's compelled, remember, to seek the will of his gods. And the way that he does that is by casting, here it is, her, casting lots. And, as you know, the day fell on the day we just covered, where Haman has now died, his sons have died, all of his compatriots have died, while those they sought to destroy have survived. As one said, the day of death had come and gone, and God's people are still alive. Why? And how? Because neither Haman nor his gods, nor random fate control the universe or what ultimately becomes of God's people. You remember Proverbs chapter 16, verse 33? We brought it up a few weeks back. Remember what it says? It says, the lot is cast into the lap, but its every decision is from the Lord. People threw the dice, but God ordained the decision. People act freely and responsibly, but God is actually God indeed. Meticulous in sovereignty. Again, in the matter of this battle, there's no suspense. Why is there no suspense? Because God is in control. (laughs) Even when we can't see Him, our God reigns. And our God is good, and He's righteous, and He's always faithful. So, Purim is a title that does two things simultaneously. It gets at God's absolute sovereignty, exercised graciously towards His people, while thereby making a mockery of our enemies who think themselves to be in control. Esther is a book that's dedicated to hope in all that it means for our God our God, to be God. And Purim celebrates that. It celebrates the goal of providence that sweet or bitter, it all flows to us from grace to glory. It celebrates God's power to care for us and preserve His purposes. It celebrates a God who can draw good out of any situation, however evil or however bleak. It celebrates a God who sticks with us to renew us and to use us even as we're prone to wander. Lord, don't we feel it? It celebrates a God who is always faithful, a God who is always righteous, a God of great reversals. And in this way, Purim points us somewhere. It points us to the greatest redemptive Reversal, right? Like every prophet, every priest, every king, every theme, every feast in the Old Testament, it points us to Christ crucified and then raised from the dead. It points us to Him who, opposite of us, different from us, in reverse of us, was born and lived without sin. It points us to Him who, though He did not sin, died of His own will in our place 
on the cross. It points to Him who, though He died for us, though we rejected Him, God raised Him up from the dead. Listen, was there not a day that the devil drew up? Was there not a day that he assumed control? Was there not a day he thought he and sin would assuredly win and we with him? But what does Scripture say? Acts chapter 2, verses 23 and 24. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God, you crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. But God raised him up loosing the pangs of death, for it was impossible for him to be held by it. So, as in Esther, Haman presumed the victory only to fall, so also on the cross, Satan, sin, death, and hell presumed the victory only to fall under the feet of the risen Jesus. In both cases, the winning plan, no matter what it involved, was in no way divergent from God's eternal purpose to save a people for himself. Now there is a difference I want us to note that whereas in Esther, the enemies were more specific and they were smote, to use that old word, at the cross, you and I were all included as the enemies. All of us. And yet, right there, we're offered salvation. To be fair, again, I suppose, Esther eventually gave their enemies warning, and by it, the opportunity to save themselves by hanging rebels on the gallows for all to see. But how that does only come into focus at the foot of the cross. The cross not of rebels, but of Christ in the place of rebels. Right, so won't we see Him, Jesus, truly today and be renewed in our love for Him, be renewed in our gratitude for Him, or perhaps maybe even saved from our sins by placing our faith in Him? Jesus is the great reverser. And just so then, last thing here, He's the great Redeemer. He is the great Redeemer. Let's not forget when we met him, beginning of the story, Mordecai was no luminary for the Lord. He was a lover of the world. And Esther, <laughs> Esther was an agreeably compromising Jewish girl quite resolved to use her perishable beauty to win the king's objectifying affections and stake her claim to the throne by way of the king's bed. A pagan king at that. And yet, seeing them clearly, God, in view of Christ, turned them and redeemed them for himself. Friends, just so, in Christ, the worst of people can become the children of God. Just ask the Apostle Paul. Indeed, those otherwise destined for hell, can become heirs of glory right now. Thieves on the cross can become participants in paradise. You remember? 
Prostitutes can become part of the pure bride of Christ. Traitors to God's crown can become guests at His table. Sinners, whatever kind of sinner they may be, can be saved. Enemies can find entrance into glory. Rebels can be reconciled to God. And we who have been, can't we also find then, verse 22, a sovereign gladness, a sovereign gladness in the place of situational sorrow? Can't we trust that no matter how dark things get, the light will dawn and win? Can't we be assured that however wrong things are at present, all things will be made new in the end? Can't we, even in the midst of utter chaos and and lack of control, submit ourselves to this biblical truth that God is in control? And can't we then offer hope to the hopeless and grace to the graceless, and love to the haters, and conviction with compassion to the compromisers, and truth to the post-truthers, and in some, Christ crucified and raised to those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. Can't we then offer them what was freely given to us by the grace of God, redemptive reversal? Beloved, we have much to share and celebrate. And and not just once a year, but at least once a week from year to year. Our Lord Jesus fulfilled the Purim holiday. And in its place, He gave us a day in which we're to especially gather as one body to rest and rejoice in His resurrection and redemption. And I don't mean Easter. I mean this. I mean the weekly gathering of God's people. I mean the Lord's day. This is supposed to be a celebration that testifies to the substance of what Purim only shadowed. As they were obliged, obligated, to unite and rejoice in sovereign grace, so too are we. And our reason for rejoicing is so much the greater, right? We shouldn't be able to to, to wait a year. We should hardly be able to wait six days. (laughs) Is that how we approach corporate worship? I can't wait to gather with God's people to worship and praise Jesus, the great Redeemer. This time together should be an ordered celebration of God's saving grace to us, of His sovereign power for us, how He's given us the mastery over our former enemies, our, over sin and death and hell, how He's irreversibly reversed, as it were, our everlasting destinies, how in spite of us He upholds us, how we can come to Him and find rest for our weary souls, how we can live in the full assurance of faith that Christ's victory really is Ours. This is a day and hour, I want you to hear it, in which God's elect exiles, 1 Peter, also Esther, however displaced, discouraged, and dragged about we may be, identifiably unite in the sure hope of home 
for the sake of spreading the good fear and fame and power and name of Jesus both here and all over the world. There is to be the joy of life from death in Jesus here and now that serves as a foretaste of that worshiping assembly in heaven. What a privilege to be for one another and for all the world a picture, however imperfect, of a relief that has no end. A deliverance beyond days. An abundance of life. A fullness of joy. A a taste. An appetizer of all things new. A true people of God. An embassy of the kingdom of Christ. Will we miss this for the world? I'm told that on Purim, the only excuse for missing the reading of Esther is to bury the dead. And will we be far more easily kept from the assembly of life that majors on the preaching of Jesus? Uh, I trust not, beloved. I saw a meme the other day. Perhaps you've seen it too. It said this, very convicting. It said Afghani Christians are literally dying to gather for worship today. While American Christians largely seem okay with any reason whatsoever to skip out on it. Why? What's the difference maker? Because persecuted believers always perceive the truth more clearly. Christ is our life. And his people, that's our family. And they're life-giving. We need each other. Let's see that together. Let's see it too. And count it worthy of our lives to worship the God of great reversals as one body of Christ. It is a good sign of your heart for Jesus that you're here right now doing this together this morning. And man, I just praise God for it. Dear friend, why will you perish when you can be saved? Let's be clear. Nothing but your own sins and persistence in it Nothing but a lack of repentance and faith in Jesus will account for your fall in the end. But there is a man. There is a man who was hanged for all to see. And the same now lives to say to you, come to me. Come to me, I will give you relief. I will give you rest. I will reconcile you to God. I'm the only one who can. So, won't you do that this morning? I pray you will. Beloved, there are hard things in this life. And because of that, how necessary to be reminded of our God. right? The God of great reversals. How edifying to recall as often as we gather, as often as we can, that we have the victory In Jesus, yes, we may come across tribulation, distress, persecution, famine, nakedness, danger, and sword for the sake of Christ, but we never come across those things. I want you to lay it to heart without the brackets or the braces of God's purpose and His love for us. In the end, all things are working together for our good. And 
Nothing can separate us from the love of God, which is in Christ Jesus. He is always faithful. Let's pray together. Lord, we do bless you for your word and ask now that you would go beyond my words, that you would answer prayers that have been made throughout the week and even this morning, that those who are gathered now who do not know you, oh, they would be found. Please save. Please raise those who are dead in their sins and trespasses. Make them your own. And please help us as a body to continue to grow in our gratitude, our thankfulness, our joyfulness in Jesus and in His, and in his people, this church. Please help us to be radiant for the sake of your glory. We give it all to you for saving us. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen.